It's a habit as old as marketing itself. Taking the people we think will be interested in our products and services and putting them in boxes. Senior executives go here, managers go there, staff members over there. Today we call it segmentation. And we often segment our audience based on who they are or what it is we think they do based on information like their job title. But is it effective? When you dive into the science on how people make decisions and what motivates them to change from the status quo and go in a new direction, the strategy many marketers use for segmentation doesn't really stand up. I'm Mike Pastor. On this episode of the podcast, we talk to Tim Reister, Chief Strategy Officer at Corporate Visions, and Amy Dunn, Director of Customer Success. We're going to start our conversation with personas, which are based on the idea that who someone is guides their decisions. But as Tim is going to explain, it's actually the situation people are in that has more influence over their behavior. And what about your existing customers? Are you treating your existing customers and your new prospects the same, showing them the same messaging, even though they're in vastly different, and in fact, almost the exact opposite situation? We're going to talk about them too. Have a listen. Okay, so back in November, Tim wrote a blog post on the Corporate Visions blog about personas, and it got the attention of Amy and I, and as well as the, the other members of our marketing team. Tim, why don't you go ahead and sort of recap your feelings about personas that you uh, expressed in the, blog, in the blog post? Well, like any good blog post, you try to be rather provocative. So people will look at it and go, hey, wait, should I, should I think about this? Should I rethink anything? But it, we feel very strongly, based on science again, uh, the, the, the behavioral economics and, and neuroscience of decision-making, that personas are, for lack of a better phrase, a made-up sort of segmentation, and that people are more moved or make decisions to change or change a behavior more based on the situation they're in than on their disposition. That's actually a piece of science called fundamental attribution error. And what it says is we tend to overestimate the power of their disposition on their behaviors and decisions. And really it's their situation that's a bigger driver. And the thing about personas is they are built more about the title, the role, the responsibility, if you will, the disposition. But I'll give you a great example of their situation that we've found changes their response and behavior. If you are a prospect and you're getting cold called, you have a totally different psychology and response to a marketing message than if you are an existing customer of that company who's communicating with you. It sounds obvious, but most companies build one size fits all messaging for let's say a CIO thinking, here's my CIO persona. And the reality is a CIO prospect at a company you're trying to target and win has a completely different psychology than a CIO at an existing customer where you're trying to renew or upsell or upgrade them. And, and, and the reality is the situation they're in, prospect versus customer, totally transcends their persona. So if you aim your message at a CIO persona, you will miss the mark because the thing that will drive their behavior to your and response to your message is whether they're a prospect or a customer. And I can go into more detail on that, but the bottom line is personas will give you generic messaging. And here you will be messaging to personas that um, are interesting, 
but ultimately it's their situation, the scenario in, the status quo scenario they're in, that is a bigger indicator of what they will respond to or won't respond to. I can tell you my problem with personas, I think over the years, and I've been working in B2B content creation and messaging for the better part of 20 years now, is how narrow they've gotten. I think, especially in B2B tech, the one thing we hear all the time is the IT talent shortage. The idea that someone only has the responsibilities that are in their job title and you're only going to target this job title, the work is getting done whether somebody is in the position or not. So you see the job title, I think, <laughs> does not tell the whole story. Right. Um, and you leave people on the table. You leave prospects on the table when you get really narrow. Different companies vest different responsibilities in different titles. So you can never be sure. And you also don't know if that title, one, do they have that responsibility? Two, is the person in that title actually a change agent, aggressively thinking about these things? So we always talk about, you look at the situation they're in, and then you shop for the person who gives a darn. So your message is based on finding the person who is willing to catalyze change. And you don't know what title or persona that's going to be. So the story is based on, here's the situation you're in. Here's what's wrong with that situation. Here's some things you need to rethink. And then it's like, now who cares? Who of you cares and who's willing to move your company in this direction? There's no guarantee that a single persona does that in every co uh, company consistently. Exactly. Amy, your thoughts on personas? So to me, it just tells, it further enhances the story that I've been talking about, about segmentation and um, really where you can differentiate yourself. And so segmentation uh, not by persona, but very much, uh, like you said, by situation. And I can't tell you how many customers of ours don't realize that they're providing us a target audience that is not exclusive um, of one or the other, of a prospect or a customer. Sometimes they provide us a list, and it's customers and prospects. And again, the same pieces of content. And so we try to really dig into what is this list comprised of? Who are the companies that are on this list? And I can't tell you enough how much this is music to my ears to have somebody else not within our organization saying some of these same things. People continue to talk about the persona, and I don't get it. Um, we're talking <laughs> about expanding the buying committee and getting people, the business users, the IT people, all of them right? The ones that are in the right situation. So I'm with you. Well, there's evidence from um, uh, Gartner that talks about how many buyers are in the buying decision and what they will say in a, uh, in a book that they wrote called the, the Challenger Customer is that if you overly tailor your message to too many personas, you end up in a lower quality deal because you've kind of pushed them into their neutral corners where they're assessing what they need in it versus bringing them to the middle in the shared situation they're all living with. And, and the job anymore uh, in a fragmented buying process of a marketer and a salesperson is to pull people together to create consensus. And persona-based messages actually pulls them apart and um, away from the shared objectives and situations. So the problem is there's literally like no good data on personas driving better decisions. Maybe here and there to get a few opens and a few clicks, um, but ultimately, when it comes to making a decision and the team has to rally together, um, you're actually doing a disservice if you perpetuate persona-based messaging from lead gen into the sales cycle. 
And I think, Tim, you just touched on something there, you know, open rates and clicks and the, the data that marketers could get is a lot of the personas and these very narrowly targeted messages um, to specific people, a product, if it must be, a product of all the data that marketers have. So who, who actually did we talk to? Who led to a buy? You look at that data on where your opportunities came from, and you can kind of see where people want to build a persona that encapsulate those people, right? But, but that can be a trap. Right, because they assume it's the people and the position they're in that made the decision. Um, but it's not. Again, it, 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 it really is ultimately a group of people deciding their situation is no longer tenable and they must do something about it. Um, and so they, they rally to solving for the problems with their situation. And that's what you really got to dig for is like, what's the common situation here? So when we talk to tech companies, we're really like, you know, you have six personas, but the reality is there's each persona has different situations. Like somebody, you're selling a new piece of tech and one persona you're talking, or, or this company may be a company that doesn't use that tech. They do it themselves. And that's a totally different message than talking to a company that uses that tech, but maybe it's 10 years old versus somebody who maybe just bought your competitor two or three years ago. If you really think about it, the mindset of your audience is completely driven by their situation. Do I have no tech? And now your message needs to shift to, hey, if you don't have tech in this spot, here's what you're missing out on. Or do you have old tech? Well, the thing is you're missing out and you have different problems if you're dealing with old tech versus no tech as the installed situation. So we always talk to companies about what are the likely installed scenarios you're going to face and what's your message for that situation? Because actually the problems and the needs and then the outcomes are different based on what's installed. If you did a persona message there, it would be the same for all of them. And it would be generic. It would be at too high a level. It, it wouldn't drive interest and intention. And it would, it would touch on too many situations in the content to make the message uh, easily digestible and a lot of things that we aim for on the content side. When you try and touch on everything in one piece of content, it gets long. A lot of the content is irrelevant to the person you're speaking to, and it gets that sort of content by committee flavor that drives me crazy um, <laughs> instead of a, a nice personalized. This is where my interest in content personalization comes from, frankly. Tell me what I need to know for my situation and, and not the piece, same right. piece of content for everyone, right? Well, I would say the other problem is that people think, oh, my goodness, now I have to do persona-based content and situation-based content. And I would tell you, no, uh, do situation-based content and you'll actually do less. Many companies have four, five, six personas. I think as per my description earlier, there's maybe three situations that you sell into, which is a prospective situation where they're doing it themselves or doing it with a competitor um, of a certain vintage and an existing customer situation where you're trying to do add-on sales or upgrade sales. And, and it's those situations that you message to and you realize you have fewer, if you will, personalizations or segmentations than if you'd gone after personas, but yet more effective. So switching gears here, uh, you, we talked about new prospects and existing customers and the difference and maybe some companies aren't paying enough attention to who falls into which category. Tim, you're the co-author of a book that's coming out in a few weeks as we're talking now. It's uh, mid-January, so February 2020. Tim uh, has a book coming out. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called The Expansion Sale. 
so we spent a lot of time and so have companies spent a lot of time, and I'm sure you guys as well, helping organizations acquire new logos, go after prospects and try to take market share. And that is a difficult task. So a lot of money, time and effort is there because the idea is maybe then they'll eventually pay off for you. Well, what's interesting is we've done a ton of research and what it takes to disrupt prospects status quo bias and how to defeat an incumbent. And people started asking us, yeah, but what if you are the incumbent? What if you are the status quo? Should we use the same approach? And this became especially important when more companies are getting into recurring revenue, subscriptions, contractual agreements, where the reality is they don't make all their money up front on a transaction. It's now spread out over time. And they, they over-service the first few years to try and keep the customers. So the time they start making money is on the renewal and after. And so they started asking us questions. What about at renewal time? What about at upsells or upgrades? What about at like um, on-premise to cloud migration conversations with existing customers? So we did the research. So we work with scientists, one at uh, Stanford University in the States and one at Warwick uh, Business School outside London. And we did simulation-based research in renewal settings, upsell settings, price increases, all these existing, existing customer settings. And we used the same sort of provocation acquisition type message with one group to try and convince them you should renew because there's all this new stuff. And with another group, we started talking more about reinforcing their bias, reminding them of the business impact they got, reminding them of the investment and effort that we've all put in together and demonstrating progress um, and momentum, and then talking about the new things and the renewal and the upsell. So think of it as acquisition messages lead with what's new and interesting and provocative. And we, we, I, we hypothesize that renewal and upsell messages lead with what's been accomplished, the positive results, the investment and effort, and make it look like it's more of a, uh, if you will, an evolution versus something surprising, different, and revolutionary. And what we discovered is if you're in a renewal or an upsell situation or trying to communicate a price increase to an existing customer, you will increase the likelihood of renewal and upsell and avoid churn by somewhere between um, 10 and 20% between uh, various studies we did if you use a deliberate uh, reinforcement of status quo bias versus using the traditional acquisition message, which is more disruptive. In fact, the disruptive message increased the likelihood that they would not renew, and it increased the likelihood they would seek other competitive alternatives. And what our scientists said was, hey, if you use such a disruptive, provocative, sort of changey sort of message for your renewal time and upgrade sales, you basically tell your existing customer they're going to have to change so much it's going to be change anyways. Why not investigate other alternatives? Why assume you're the best alternative? So what we say is your messaging with existing customers actually has to deliberately build a firewall or build a moat around your incumbent advantage. Leverage your incumbent advantage before you start talking about the other stuff because it, it reminds everybody years later why they made the decision, what they got out of the investment, the effort and investment that was made, the partnership bonds and the knowledge and the expertise and the relationships you forged, and they are less and less likely to change or seek other alternatives because they start to think, I could put all that at risk. Why would I do such a thing? Most people prefer to keep with status quo. Don't give them a reason to leave when you are the status quo is sort of the nutshell. So the book is based on 
uh, a framework we identified as the best way to tell a renewal story. We call it the why stay story. Another framework for the why evolve story, that's upgrades, add-ons, or migrations. And then the why pay more story, price increases. Many companies introduce price increases in later stages of customer relationships. And the fourth one is the, we call the why forgive story. Many customers, companies struggle with service problems and needing to um, respond to those service problems in a way that ideally would engender greater loyalty and satisfaction versus destroy that loyalty and satisfaction. So we're attacking the main like commercial moments of an existing customer relationship and discovering that the psychology is different. And as a result, your messages, the content you create, and the skills you, with which you have those conversations are actually 180 degrees different than your acquisition approaches. It's, it's turning okay. things inside out in some ways because on the selling to a new customer side, the status quo is often the biggest competitor, the biggest challenge to overcome. You look at it this way and you say, well, now I'm your status quo. And <laughs> right. we're, we're doing all right. <laughs> why, would right. You, why would you disrupt the status quo when you're the status quo, right? Right. So, Amy, Amy, it sounded like you had a comment there. Oh, oh just that I, I just really love this, um, this breakdown and the mentality because, like you said, it's obvious, but it's not obvious. It's obvious looking at it from, from our side, whereas when you're in maybe a field marketing team of a big tech company, you may not be looking at it in this way. You may only be tasked with doing X. And so I think getting people to think about this more, um, this is, this, there's no better time than now to get folks involved on this side. Um, we, have com we have customers that are enterprise clients that could definitely use this type of advice and your book. <laughs> um, there you but go. it doesn't mean that you can use that same uh, formula for your um, small to mid-sized companies that we work with as oh, well. Absolutely. Everybody, like customers are precious, number one, and you spent and worked so hard to get them. So churn is really painful, especially given that you probably don't make money in the early stages because you probably sold it at a lower price to get the business and then over-serviced it to keep the business. If they leave at that point, you didn't make any money on that deal because the, the dollars get pushed out over the life of a contract versus taking them all up front. So every company is like rethinking their approach. And as, if you've watched the, the, the space or the category called customer success management is literally exploding now as companies who are a little more mature realize, wow, and this is true, like look at your revenue plan for the coming year. How much of that is coming from existing customers that you're hoping to retain and expand? And you realize, oh my goodness, I'm using the exact wrong approach on the majority of my calls because 70 to 80% of revenue it comes from existing customers. And as a result, so does your growth. And what we're discovering is you're, you're using the exact opposite. In fact, 180 degree wrong approach if you're being disruptive to those places where you should be reinforcing or defending um, and uh, leveraging your incumbent advantage. So it's really been an eye opener to think about, one, how important this group is, two, how underserved they've been in terms of research and understanding of the psychology of them and how to approach them differently. And then three, what kind of sort of shift that's going to require. And it all comes back to personalization. Like you said earlier, Mike, uh, the main thing to figure out in terms of the psychology of your message and your content and your conversations is, are they a prospect who I must disrupt and defeat status quo bias? 
or are they an existing customer? I must defend, reinforce, and expand and evolve my their status quo bias for me. And if your message doesn't pivot on those two things, instead you focus on six different personas, you, you've, you've totally lost your way. You've created probably six times the amount of content than you needed to, and it's totally generic because it's sitting over the top of, of acquisition and expansion saying the same thing to both sides. So this is a huge opportunity or movement or inflection point to rethink this. So let's look ahead. The weird thing about marketing I've come to learn is that everybody talks about how much marketing has changed. And in B2B marketing, that's certainly true. And I, I often say if we did a word cloud of our podcast, change would probably be in the big 42-point type. But we've talked about personas, which have been a best practice for a while. We talked about the difference between new and renewal customers and how they should be treated differently. But a lot of marketers are still relying on personas as a best practice and still, as you said, Tim, pushing the same message to new prospects and existing customers. So on the one hand, we've got that's full of change. On the other hand, there's some things that are very slow change. Like I said, it's early January 2020, mid-January 2020. For having this conversation a year from now, other than Tim's position on the bestseller list and what he's going to do with all his royalties, what might be we be talking about? Um, yeah, so I, I think in, in the world, what I think is interesting as I talk to you guys and what you do at your company is you help generate leads. And there's a need to generate leads with new prospects and with existing customers. And like I said, maybe more so with existing customers. And then what I look at, like our company shows up when now somebody's lips have to move. So like your SDRs who are following up on the leads, uh, your customer success people, your account managers, your salespeople, like at some point a lead with either audience requires then a conversation for differentiation. And I think what marketers are starting to realize is the conversion rate of their leads is directly proportional to how well you equip and enable the people who are gonna have that next or first conversation. Because a lot of stuff goes to die there but a lot of marketers like wash their hands of it. Like, okay, over to you sales. And if something doesn't happen, it's clearly sales fault. Um, Forrester research says that within the next two years, greater than 50% of sales enablement functions are going to roll up to marketing instead of sales because they've been able to demonstrate that where, where sales enablement rolls up to marketing, there's greater productivity and greater results than when it rolls up to sales. And so what I see is marketing going down to touch throughout the funnel and the mid funnel touches both in terms of more mid funnel conversion touches after a lead is generated and now you're equipping the sales conversation and even surrounding it with some digital touches and then getting involved in these retention and renewal conversations with messages and content assets and some touches. I, 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 I think there's room in the funnel uh, because we also know that the customers and prospects spend time in the digital world. And so I think marketers have to think more about how the message changes, the content assets change, and how the conversation is being executed, not just at the top of the funnel and not just washing your hands. So literally, you're going to have to think of yourself as a mid-funnel agent, both digitally and in service and enablement of the sales conversations that you're development reps, your, your sales reps, and your, your account managers are having. So marketers, um, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves. You're going to have to, you have to go further down in this thing um, and in order to 
ensure the kind of the amount of touches required and the conversion rates that everybody's looking for. And uh, I think it's very telling that uh, potentially the actual function of sales enablement could be moving into the marketing department. So we're keeping an eye on that as a huge trend. Um, we sometimes joke uh, that um, the trend we call marketing wins <laughs> because there's always been this animosity between marketing and sales. And we've created this like um, wall between us. Now that wall's coming down, but it's marketing that's going to go further down the funnel and, and not sales. So it's sort of like marketing wins in air quotes because be careful what you wish for because now you own this responsibility. Um, you used to be able to blame it on sales. And one more trend that I would say that we see is the number of sales calls that have been, are moving inside where like online meetings and web conferencing is superseded direct face-to-face -face sales calls by a factor of many. So here's the deal. 50% of sales reps anymore in B2B are inside sellers and never go out to meet customers. And of those sellers that still go out and meet customers, 50% of their calls are actually virtual, remote, online. So it's no longer about what the person can do in front of the customer. It's literally like, literally like the deck. Your presentation deck will dictate the outcome. And I don't think marketers and even sellers have thought much about what has to change in a web conference environment versus when maybe somebody's standing delivering in a room and, and they're present and the dialogue and the interaction and the attention. Now you're in an intention um, competitive environment online with multitasking going rampant. What are you doing to, uh, uh, with your presentation decks to enable your sales conversations to achieve the stimulation threshold, maintain that and be memorable and motivational after that event is over. So two big trends, um, sales enablement, rolling upstream to marketing and marketing going deeper down the funnel. And the other is remote selling, replacing direct selling. And now something that marketing's fully responsible for usually, which is the deck is gotta be better than ever and it has to be built to op and optimized for that remote virtual selling environment. Right, and, and Amy, before you, before you jump in, one thing I would suggest to marketers, great video from Corporate Visions on that sales marketing disconnect on the content side, the, the, the gap that exists between the marketing content and the sales content, maybe something people don't realize, that there's sort of a handoff there and, and the story that marketing tells, the story that sales tells, I came across that video and found myself nodding for the entire two or three minutes. Totally makes sense, especially once you look at the video and it's sort of visualized for you. Amy, trends, coming year, what do you got? Okay, so uh, I really appreciate what uh, you both just shared. Mine is a little bit of a step back, and it's more of a the blow-up of the term ABM and account-based marketing. Because in essence, we are talking about that. Right. Um, but I think that there's been so much weight placed on that with organizations just not being mature enough to handle that. And because it has so many meanings, because um, uh, a list that's made up of accounts that you're targeting could be targeting anybody, prospects, uh, personas or uh, prospects or um, customers, um, not enough weight has been put into what differentiates those on that list. So I feel like ABM might become another term that we're going to hate for the next five years, but it's one that's really going to um, help our uh, clients, 
customers, vendors, everybody really identify who their target audience is um, even more granularly. So I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing in terms of being more efficient. I think it's going to add complexity, uh, but we're up to the task because we've been touting that for quite some time. Okay. Amy Dunn, Tim Reister, Chief Strategy Officer of Corporate Visions. Thank you both for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.